0: Hey everyone, how's it going? You're listening to another episode of the Wild Voices Project Podcast with me, Matt Williams. And this is probably going to be the last episode that I publish in 2018, and I think it's a really nice conversation to end on. Today I'm speaking to Joe Roberts, the Chief Executive of the Wilderness Foundation, which you can find at wildernessfoundation.org.uk. Joe has served as the Foundation's Chief Executive since 2004 and the Foundation works to transform the lives of young people from challenged and challenging backgrounds through wilderness experiences and thereby to demonstrate the value of wilderness and wild spaces. Joe and the Foundation run workshops, mentoring and expeditions at their base in Essex, in Scotland and in South Africa as well. And just as a quick disclaimer, since i recorded this conversation with joe i've become one of the trustees of wilderness foundation uk joe grew up in south africa and trained there as an anthropologist during the apartheid period and we discuss her upbringing and her early love of wildlife and of the outdoors we talk about the skills she has developed through her own experiences in the wilderness And we also cover some of the questions and techniques she uses to support and challenge the young people who she works with in order to help change or even sometimes radically transform their life paths. Jo's one of the most thoughtful and inspiring people I've had the chance to work with and we have had the chance to work together on a number of projects over the last couple of years. And I'm really looking forward to working more with her and the foundation over the coming years as well. And next year I'm hoping to combine my love of camping and of Scotland uh, and learn more about the organisation and support some of the young people it works with by volunteering on one of their expeditions. And finally, just to say, as always, that the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at www.wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and in Stitcher. And if you've listened to the podcast and enjoyed it in 2018, then thank you very much. And I hope you have a restful and happy holiday period and that you get to spend some time in the outdoors enjoying nature. Without any further ado, let's dive in to this episode with Joe Roberts, a champion for the wilderness. Great, well Joe, thank you very much and welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, I want to start where I often start, which is by asking where your interest or passion for nature, the wilderness, uh, the outdoors came from, whether that was in childhood or later on.
1: Um, Well, I was really lucky because I grew up in South Africa and I had a dad who was a passionate and really experiential conservationist. So I was I was so blessed. Grew up with a dad who we'd been camping weekends and bird watching outings and game reserve outings, and he was just one of those inspirational people who interested in absolutely everything. So from birds to shells to animals to the wind, wind to clouds. So I, I was very blessed. So I grew up sort of quite a lonely child because I was the third, third of much older siblings and you know, just attached myself to my father's coattails. So I was his little shadow for most of my childhood. And, and yeah, and loved growing up in Africa because, you know, there's such variety and such richness of, of everything. So, yeah, very, very blessed. That's where it came from.
0: Do you have any particularly strong memories of specific experiences, maybe with your father or on your own, where you experienced the outdoors or maybe some wildlife in particular when you were growing up? Well, I think when
1: I was little, I played in our garden a lot. And that sounds like everybody can play in their garden, which is so lovely if they've got a garden. But I was, you know, I spent hours kind of watching bees and spent hours making dens in the back of kind of the shrubbery and, you know, got terribly excited by snails. I used to collect snails. I had cardboard boxes full of snails and, you know, just absolutely mesmerized by them. Um, So I think... I love beauty, and I think even from when I was a tiny child, I, you know, would be mesmerised by beautiful things. I was a bit like a magpie, I think, and, um, you know, really took joy in in all the minutiae of beauty, of nature. But I think my dad, um, yeah, he was tough and rough. And weekends, I know it sounds terrible now. We'd have the, you know, RSPCA on us, but the dogs used to go in the boot of the car. And we'd drive out to, to this amazing place called Swartkops, which is sort of black-haired in German or Dutch, Dutch and uh, go walking and climbing. And I remember jumping across really big, big kind of waterfalls with my dad with his legs stretched across and yanking us over. But we'd have these enormous days at Swartkops and, you know, go camping. And then he built an old canoe, so we'd do a lot of canoeing. But the game reserve was my favorite place. You know, I could still smell the huts, you know, in those days, the little round huts and you had thatched roofs still. And, you know, just the excitement of getting up early in the morning and heading off to see what, what we were lucky enough to see. And, you know, had some amazing experiences because they were, but they were mainly car-based in the game reserve at that stage. And then that evolved later as I got on uh, older because my dad actually got onto the board of Parks Board. So that's when we became very privileged because we were able to go on the off-roads and get out of the car and had a lot of people showing us their research and what they were doing and so hugely privileged in that way.
0: Um, and getting out and about and, you know, like you say, jumping jumping across waterfalls and that sort of thing sounds like, sounds like perfect preparation for some of the work that you do today, which we'll come on to. But do you think your father was kind of trying to proactively nurture any particular skills or type of resilience or do you think he was he wasn't he didn't have that so much in mind and was just kind of getting you out into the outdoors?
1: You know I think my dad was just I think my dad was the most he was kind of I don't know how to describe him he was and he was the kind of person everybody followed so on holiday you know but he was totally and utterly his own person so when we were on holiday, which was another sort of amazing nature experience because we I fished as a child, standing on rocks with big waves crashing in all over us, um, you know, my dad would just do what he was going to do. <laughs> and if you wanted to go, fine. If you didn't want to go, he still went. So he had this kind of pipe-piper way of everybody just wanting to hang out with him because he was always doing interesting things. So I don't think he had that intention, but he was a great – he spent a lot of time – teaching as well. He shared his interest verbally and practically. And I think I learned a lot intellectually from him. And then I learned a lot experientially from him. And as he got older, the children, my children used to just roll their eyes, because grandpa could sort of be like a soliloquy for three hours in the car (laughs) talking about climate change and talking about what are we going to do as humans to live differently and you know, he was a very deep thinker, but he talked a lot. So they used to go, oh, God, Daddy talk Grandpa talks so much. Mommy, do we have to really listen our way? But, you know, he was a great thinker and I and he shared that with me. So I'm very grateful.
0: Do you remember, because so much of your work today is with children and young people, do you remember how it made you feel when you were playing with snails in your back garden or when you were out on these walks and these adventures what what were the emotions or the feelings that that brought to the surface for you
1: I think I was just I think I was just I'm trying to think how I felt I was just mindful I think I was caught in a completely mindful process I think I was just totally self-absorbed well not self-absorbed but absorbed by all the things around me um and quite quirky I think but I think I was very happy. I think I was a very happy little person running around, smelling daffodils and carrying snails. I think I was very innocent, actually. I think there was a real innocence in me as a child, um, you know, which sadly kind of gets ironed out a bit later. But I was very innocent, but took innocent pleasure and and found nature my my place of of happiness. That's where I was the happiest. I would kind of, you know, withdraw to the garden. I think my mother was quite a beautiful woman but very complicated home was madly kind of strange and I would just be in the garden and that's where I found my my sort of serenity I think.
0: And so today you're your CEO of the Wilderness Foundation in the UK but for me there's a bit of a kind of gap in my knowledge of of um the time your timeline so I know you started with Wilderness Foundation UK as a as a volunteer some years ago but what um what happened between this childhood growing up and experiencing nature in the outdoors and getting first involved with wilderness foundation in the UK and if i correct me if i'm wrong but did you spend some time working in townships in south africa and seeing yeah. for yourself the power of exposing people to the wilderness
1: well i suppose i came about things sort of a bit more round in a different roundabout way so i think You know, I, I, you know, had a a really good education, which I kind of messed up a few times um, and then went just scraped by the skin of my teeth into university and then um, didn't know what to study. I had no idea. So I looked at classes that started late on a Monday and finished early on a Friday. And um, I was very lucky. I went to Stellenbosch University. Um, which was a long way from home. I was 17 when I left. I arrived in Stellenbosch with a plastic bag with my duvet in it and moved into a house with a whole lot of third-year students who were all studying biology um, and outdoor farming and sciences. So that was really cool. Um, But I found anthropology as my subject just by fluke. And um but also was surrounded by all these, these others who who kind of we you know we did a lot of outdoor hiking and they dragged me into the, the kind of wilds of the of the Western Cape, which is just absolutely mesmerizingly beautiful. And we lived in a house up in the mountains, um very wild, a wild space. So I studied anthropology, which I fell in love with. My dad, what I hadn't said when well, I keep talking about my father. Anyway, he uh, was a doctor and he had worked on the mines. And his particular interest was in malnutrition um, and human well being and started right. up several charities and been very involved in the apartheid struggle, but also in poverty relief. And so I was, as a child, apart from going to the game reserve, I spent my, you know, hours up in the Maluti Mountains when my dad was visiting clinics. And so I had a deep love of people and I had a deep love of. Um, understanding what makes us all fit together. And anthropology was just my love subject, and I just was very lucky because I fell into it by fluke, as I say, because it was finished early on a Friday afternoon. (laughs) But I fell in love with it and carried on to then do postgraduate social anthropology. I had an inspiring lecturer uh, called Louis Buerta, who was an extraordinary man. And um, so... But at the same time, I loved nature, so I was kind of caught with these two issues. So I then did, I worked for Cape Town University as a researcher, as an anthropologist. But again, we were in rural areas, so we were right, you know, in the Drakensberg Mountains. We were up the West Coast in uh, the Richtersveld, which is the most extraordinary semi-desert area uh, with fantastic political background and fantastic people who live there and work this barren earth. Um so that was all cooking. And then I worked for the Chamber of Mines as a researcher uh, as well. And then I fell in love with an Englishman and came to England. Uh, and that was the end of conservation and people other than sitting, temping in London, um, which was an interesting experience. But I did get to know London. Um, and then we moved to Luxembourg. And it was in Luxembourg that when I'd sort of stopped working and I, you know, had my children and I had time, that all of this passion started to come up again. And um, I then approached, I read a, a, a Ian Player's book, which is, you know, worth reading, called Shadow and Soul. Um, and I'd also read an article in Geographical Magazine that talked about um, a project called Imbewu, which meant seed in Zulu. And it was taking urban youth back into wild Africa, their, their ecological heritage, because apartheid had forced people off the land. And the project was about saying, if we don't have a sense of ownership and love and connection, why would we want to protect it? And I fell in love with the project, fell in love again with the whole concept and then contacted the South African Wilderness Leadership School and said, I want to do something. I want I want to raise money and I want to take more young people out um, for Mbewu because I was a white, privileged South African these are kids who black growing up in townships who never had what I had and I want to put something back. And that's where it all started. Um, and that we kicked Inbewu off in the UK with raising uh, about 60000 £70,000 over a series of years to send more black South African youth out into wilderness.
0: So just skipping back slightly to the two bits of anthropological research you were doing for the mining company, and then I think you said before that there was some research that you were doing. Was there anything you learned through that research about people that informed the work you would come to do later on, whether it was through Mbewu or um, through Wilderness Foundation?
1: Do you know, I think that at that stage, particularly, you know, when I was working in what was called Kwakwa, which was one of the South African homelands that had been created to sort of pocket people into different areas, I, I think I was just... I think I realised then that I had a really strong empathy level, you know, and I I would walk into little homesteads with my flipboard and somehow find a connection with the women that I met, about their children, about where they lived. Um I think that, you know, working for the Chamber of Minds and my research was much more academic. I didn't actually have a lot more contact with people. But I think I've I think I'm fascinated by people. I'm fascinated about the sense of meaning for people. And I think if anyone can find meaning, um, that makes all the difference. And if you can help someone find meaning, then it makes all the difference. But you've got to listen and take the time to to work with people because we're complex animals. Um, and I, I find that fascinating.
0: So coming back to Mbewu, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you then have the opportunity to see, see with your own eyes and play a role in getting the the young black children who'd been affected by apartheid out into, out into the wilderness and be part of the, the operation of that project on the ground? And if so, what did you see through that?
1: Well, I think um, what I saw through that was the what I loved about the project was the intergenerational side of it. So I think what was so amazing with that is that the project worked around taking elders, and you know I think that's we are missing something in in Western civilization. Um, I think the Eastern bloc tends to, if you can call it that now, Eastern Europe has a value set that still seems to really respect elders. But African society is unbelievable about the respect for elders, and um, even today. And I found that the project, because it worked with elders um, and young people, was very inspiring to watch together. And it was a sharing of wisdom back almost to a sort of an older stage of life when we, as elders, felt our responsibility was to share information. And that was a, a fantastic part of that program. Um, and watching young people and the elders actually connecting in with each other and watching, a bit like my father and I, you know, just watching and learning from, le- watching and learning from somebody um, who's been through it and who's willing to teach and share what they know with complete open abandonment to just part- just sharing everything they knew. And also, you know, watching people's faces light up. It's exactly the same here. Um, You know, young people arrive looking rather travel-worn, tired, um, hesitant, anxious, unsure. And within a very short space of time, I think nature weaves its magic and eyes light up and faces relax and people laugh from their bellies. And it it, it has a significant effect.
0: What sorts of things was it that the elders were sharing with the young people? Was it stories or traditional practices or was it just sharing an experience together over a few days or... How long the, the the kind of experience ran for?
1: Well, they were all different ones, but the, the, the Kruger Park ones that were the first ones that we got involved with, and it depends on the elders to a certain extent. Mm. Some are great raconteurs and some are great, sort of are a little bit shyer. But um, the program was really broken up into a week, and it was there was sitting around the fire and telling stories, which was huge. And I think what was so fascinating, just remembering that a lot of those particular elders had grown up in very traditional backgrounds. So it was also taking young urban youth who were losing touch with some of their more traditional practice and just listening to the stories about childhood with the wild, connection with the wild, um, their knowledge of plants and trees and animals. And just the awe and wonder that actually comes up in young people's faces when they sit and listen to, and when you're sitting around a fire at night and listening to stories, I mean, we all go back into a childlike wonderment. It's just fantastic. So, but then they also did walks. So there was also trails. So they went out on trail as well. So they had the experience rather than just hearing, they were doing. And I think that's why the project's actually really important.
0: Okay, and I want to so I want to um, move on to your work with the Wilderness Foundation, and maybe just begin by asking when it was you first became involved in it.
1: I think it was around 1998 because we'd just moved from living in Luxembourg back to living in England, and I'd already started the year before. I must have started in Luxembourg. So when I read Ian's book. Um, We then put together this, um, I went on a charity trek that um, had been organized by London Radio and it was to um, northern Morocco and it was, God, it was a hellish journey because it poured with rain and we sunk down to our fires in mud, which you don't quite expect walking through the desert. But anyway, um, and that got me going and thinking that I wanted to do the same kind of idea to raise money for Mbewu. So when we left Luxembourg, I then got in touch with the school and I then did the same kind of model um, of, of raising money. So that was about 1998. So it was, you know, I'm starting to feel a bit old now when I do think about that. It was 1998.
0: And could you say a little bit uh, in your own words, what, what it is the Wilderness Foundation UK does and perhaps the the international infrastructure that it's connected to as well?
1: Right, so... We we are all. I'll start with the international because I think it's really important. So we're all founded from the same kind of early beginning, which was this extraordinary man, Ian Player. Um, he founded the Wilderness Leadership School in 1956. Um, he was a game ranger. He had walked the bush. He had taken people into the wild and seen a transformation in them. But also, he was an extraordinary writer. Very avid Jungian, um, and he wanted to sort of create a deeper journey for people where they connected deeply with wilderness from an experiential spiritual level, and then that gave them the passion to want to protect it. So that's the thread that that I inherited from, from Ian. Um, the Wild Foundation, I think Ian met Vance Martin. if I'm not incorrect, Um somewhere at a conference, maybe even in Australia, but they ended up being connected at Fintorn, the Fintorn Foundation up in Scotland. And Vance was there for many years. And then Ian persuaded him to start an organization called, I think it was then called the Wilderness, it was called Wilderness International Leadership something. Mm -hmm. And that eventually turned into Wild in the States. And Vance has carried this extraordinary candle of the World Wilderness Congresses Just to recap slightly on that, in 1976 I went to my first, the very first World Wilderness Congress, which was held in Johannesburg, so I was 16 at the time. Um, And from then on these Congresses have taken place around the world every four years, which is the greatest gathering of wilderness minds and souls and practitioners and politicians. Um, And Vance has taken that, that on, that's been Vance's baby for all these years. And done an exceptional job, and that's what Ian handed handed the baton over on that. And Vance also have Vance's Wild Foundation do a lot of policy work. They now run Coalition Wild, which is a connection between us, um, and they have you know put together some extraordinary work on wilderness directories, etc. So they've taken quite an academic side, a practical conservation side, and the Congress as an advocacy side. Um, The Wilderness Foundation South Africa um, is probably our sort of closest, I don't want to say bedfellow, but closest sort of practical practice uh, charity. They have three main strands of work, which is education, uh, advocacy, um, and human well-being, social benefit programs. And so we kind of, for many years, followed the same format as the South African Wilderness Foundation. And that was really, again, addressing social need in South Africa, um, trying to find ways of wilderness being a tool for social entrepreneurship and change. Um, education tied into that as well, and conservation was practical conservation, and, and the advocacy was still a huge part of what Andrew does, um, fighting corners everywhere. And I can tell you right now that South Africa is under enormous environmental threat, which is such a such a pity, mm. because it's one of the first countries ever to have um, a human right, in, human rights involved in environmental protection as one of our human rights. So, and Andrew also runs an extraordinary project called to uh, which is working with very vulnerable um, young people, and again using education in wilderness, and sort of for pathwaying those young people into um, jobs linked to the ecotourism sector. So a very, 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 very powerful project. And, and he himself um, had been a Rolex Award winner for entrepreneurship and very dynamic person and very inspirational and doing some exceptional work. Um, and then we were founded in 1976, um, Ian Player, was a quite interesting man, you know, he from a game ranger he had extraordinary friends, so he was friendly with the Duke of Wellington, Lawrence von der post Jimmy Goldsmith, there was a whole range of the great and the good that he connected in with um, and took them on trail. They all went on wilderness trails to Africa, um slept on the slept on the ground, um for, for those primitive journeys. Um, but Ian then sort of I think thought to pay the Paths of London were paved in gold, and um, he wanted to sort of get more people to go to Africa on trail, and that's how the foundation started here, as something called the Wilderness Trust. And you know, it took people out, but it never quite gained momentum. And then I think we've managed as a team here to gain the momentum um, because I think we were challenged about pure wilderness living here in the UK. You know, it was hard to push a wilderness message. And so for many years, we sent people to South Africa all the time. And I then started to really question, what are we doing here? And should we be just sending people to Africa? Because surely we need to create a love and attachment and connection to our own nature here in the UK. Mm. So got much more involved here. So... We've had many strap lines. We've had strap lines maybe ten years ago that said working for wilderness, wildlife, and people. And now we talk about um, the the using, well utilising, borrowing the benefit of of nature to help people and then inspiring people in turn to help nature. And I think that's really what our purpose is. So every bit of our work that we do that grows and benefits people, includes leave no trace ethics includes a whole set of values that go hand in hand with with us caring back in return and doing our best so that's kind of where we are
0: okay great thanks that was that was brilliant um and one of the things that i find interesting about the model of your work and correct me if i'm wrong but is that um you advocate for the conservation of wilderness areas not not in the same way as some organisations do, which is perhaps a bit more conventional by, you know, by buying up chunks of them or by lobbying at the policy level for designations, but by demonstrating the value that those wilderness areas have to people through the various projects that you run.
1: That's correct. I think that's... that's. Oh, can you write our straplines for us going forward? <laughs> uh. Uh, that's 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 correct. And I think, to be fair, Matt, you know there are a lot of a lot of people advocating for conservation, and a lot of really good organizations that do very active conservation. and And I think from a strategic level, we just couldn't even find a place in that world. We were too small, we didn't actually, have a practical space that we could demonstrate in, you know. And in the early days, golly, we were working out of my study at home, and then we were in a noisy office with ambulances going past so we couldn't hear ourselves think. Um, and we weren't. We had no wilderness. We didn't. Own, we had no access. We didn't. We didn't have wilderness. Um, and so that's where we started to work with people and then go to wilderness. So I think it was kind of a set of you know, stars in the sky and bright lights in my eyes and distractions, and somehow life took us in that direction. But it did fit with the philosophy of my childhood. It fitted with what the Wilderness Foundation in South Africa had started. It fitted with Mbewu. It it just evolved out of that. Um, And I think the more we can find niches for each other so that we cover lots and lots of landscape. Um and not try and double up all over the place and compete with each other. That's a good way to be and And I think we've we've found our little niche here, which we now I'd like to think doing really, really well on because we're measuring, measuring and measuring all the time. what what impact this makes? Mm.
0: And I was wondering if um rather than asking you to try to describe all the different projects that you do because there's so much work that you and the Wilderness Foundation do in the UK maybe you could illustrate that through an example of one of the projects that you run or even be as specific as talking about a recent um, expedition trail that you run with with young people um, as a way of illustrating some of the work that you do.
1: it's funny while we're talking I'm just looking at the front of my office and watching a group of youngsters disappearing out they've just they've got a program that they're part of at the moment called the Out There Academy um, and it's just lovely watching them all going out the door and knowing they've got a day of kind of really being deeply immersed in the woods all day so um, i think if i break up our work into the the sections that i mm. kind of alluded to earlier so i think the one part of our work is about and it is reaching the more privileged youth in, in in Britain, I have to be really frank about that, because they've got money to go to Africa. But we have worked with cadet groups in Norfolk and Sussex and also um, from Essex itself. That is encouraging young people to go on what they would see as an expedition, um, and they do primitive wilderness trails. And what I love about that is it is that deep immersion that they go on. I don't think even from the talks we give and the preparation for the journeys, I don't think it ever quite um, hits them until they are deeply in the wild, um, round their small fire with lions grunting in the night. And, you know, we've now had 55,000 people across our programs in history who've done this primitive wilderness journey, you know, no tents, no camps, sleeping wild on the ground in your sleeping bag one by one doing night watch and forming a, a very very deep bond with each other yourself and nature so we continue that work um, and I find that very interesting we've just done a project with Eton so we we were very 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 interested that Eton came on board we, we talked to them years ago and they've got a fantastically inspiring biology teacher who's you know a, a real advocate for wildness and conservation, and, and she was passionate about bringing her boys out on trail. And so they had a very interesting trail because they did a wilderness trail seeing rhino in the wild, and then they joined one of our uh, groups in the Pilanesberg Game Reserve who got an anti-poaching problem. So of course we kept the boys well away from any danger, but they got really stuck in on a conservation level mm. um, in terms of fence patrols and going out with the anti-poaching teams to understand their training and how they work and they, they had a complete blast. Um, I think they were blown away by the whole thing but it came from a really emotional level for them because they'd seen Rhino in the Wild and then they were confronted with the crisis of Rhino in the Wild um, and so we've been trying to sort of pull together an ambassadorial program for them, got some fantastic footage, we've got some amazing interviews with them and their teachers so that gets mirrored across a whole range of other schools that we work with, um, because it's it's something I think that someone will never ever ever lose, you know. And I meet people in their sixties who went on trail when they were younger, never lose that thread. It's still our, our chairman went on trail at fifteen, um, and he can still repeat the same conversations he had with his his trail guides, um, and he's in his sixties now. So it has a dramatic impact so that's the more conservation ambassadorial side and with that comes leadership development and we're really trying to now build up a a more work with corporates um, in terms of an environmental ethic um but also about their their welfare in their companies our main bulk of work i think is the sort of social benefit work and the youngsters going out the door in front of me and the various programs that we run but they, they, they're complex youth. they youngsters who are hard to be educated, hard to get on with because their behavior is quite extreme. Drugs and alcohol is massive. Self-harm is massive. Depression is massive and chronic anxiety. And then young people, I think, who there's a lovely Japanese term, term called ikigai, the reason you get up in the morning. And they've lost an ikigai. They have no purpose. And they feel lost for meaning, mm. um, and so they come to us in a range of programs. Some deep wilderness immersion, some like today, which is a six-week program of nature immersion. Um, and it, it's and one-to-one work. So we do quite a lot of therapeutic one-to-one work. You know, with the young person who can't actually function in the group. And we're just starting a whole range of nature therapy camps as well. That's going to be running through the summer holidays. And, you know, we art, rain or shine, um, immersing, sleeping on the ground, connecting with nature, sitting on the ground, but at the same time, teaching values and ethics for ourselves as humans, but values and ethics for the earth as well. And then um, in MBEWU in Scotland is sort of a, a slightly different program, which... It has been so exciting because I've always wanted to bring in Baywood to Scotland um, because of private land ownership. Um, at one stage, I don't know the exact statistic now, but most of Scotland, three quarters of Scotland, was in private ownership, um, and people were increasing, to increasingly living in cities. And so I was very keen that we worked with those young people growing up in inner cities in Scotland to connect with that beautiful landscape that was an ecological heritage for them too. And so started in Beiwoo and then the intergenerational side comes from meeting people who live on estates and live in rural areas and share their stories and life lifestyles. And then we pathway them into education um, linked to the rural sector. Um, and so that side of things is kind of a mix of conservation and social benefit and employability skills. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm sure I'm forget- and then, you know, a huge conservation side of what we do is a project, and I know I'm doing exactly what you didn't want me to do, is a project called the Chatham Green Project that's run by our very inspiring um, education officer, Jenna Kane. And we have 4,000-plus small children um, and middle school children come through an immersion here on our base, which is a 400-acre farm in Essex, which is a working farm but we've got 44 acres of land that we use for, for working with, with groups and people. And that's, you know that's an amazing project of falling in love with birds and bees and butterflies and understanding balance. So that's what we're trying to find in that project, is how do we balance the need for food and look after nature at the same time and look after people. So it's a fantastic program that runs. I mean, Jenna's absolutely ragged. You know, we've had groups of 200 in a day and 70 students each day for a week, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, it, it but it's, it does really touch hearts and minds very
0: deeply. So, with the, particularly with the social benefit work with with the young people who've been through or got very challenging circumstances although i suppose this this question applies to all three groups um do you think that uh, without meaning to trivialize the the challenges or the circumstances of those young people do you think that growing deprivation or denial of access to nature and green spaces among young people compounds some of those problems that they're facing or suffering from
1: it's, a, it's an interesting one. I definitely, I did a huge amount of research um, around mental health and urbanisation, and I think I'd like to spend a lot more time on it as well. I think that there's definitely some significant uh, connections between um, more isolated, non-nuclear family, urban dwelling with a disconnection from green space, in terms of our mental well-being. Of that, I'm convinced. Um, And I think that um, our society started to fragment um, in terms of we're losing our sort of primitive clan way of living. We've become a lot more fragmented, and I think that's having significant issues. Um, And I think they all go hand in hand. But I think we've also... I can see on people's faces... And I know through our science that spending time in nature has some dramatic impact on a sense of belonging and connection. And I think probably our society at the moment is having a crisis of belonging and connection and meaning. Um, And somehow when the magic of nature weaves its wonderful fronds around everybody, there's something that shifts. Um, And... Yeah. And I, I, I know that something dramatic happens. And but unfortunately we, we, we're becoming, you know, even around us here, it's four hundred thousand houses being pushed in. It's concreting over nature and countryside. And and we are we are gonna face a peril with that. I'm absolutely convinced of it.
0: And you, you've moved on beautifully to what was gonna be my next question, which is when when that magic happens, what is the specific quality or qualities of nature or wilderness that allow that change to happen. So why, why I suppose, to um, kind of put the question in a bit of a more crass way, why take these young people out into nature or wilderness as opposed to just getting them together with each other in a, in a room, in a building?
1: So there are two sides to it. The one side, as we know, from fractal patterns, from neurology, from it's so, there's so much fascinating science now about the visual impact of nature on our brains, okay? There's so much research now on just the smell of trees, on our whole neurology and our, our bodily well-being and mental well-being. So one side of it is nature is calming for many people. Um, all our kids, why do you like coming? Because I feel I can relax, I can be calm. I feel peaceful. That comes out all the time. Our more dramatic wilderness journeys we do are tough. They are tough journeys. We're carrying heavy packs. We're canoeing heavy canoes. We're kayaking big seas. Um, What I love about those journeys is often the young people that we work with, particularly the most complex 16 plus, have lost touch with their own ability to cope their own ability to know what they're good at and find strength. They've lost touch with an ability to know how to help others. They've just gone into a very strange space. And the wilderness journey unpacks all of that. And we have some hellish times. We have some, you know, my first big wilderness journey, this kind of client group was in 2007 on the Isle of Mull in winter. So it was dark by four o'clock. Wow backpacking on Mull in a very remote area. And our two groups got divided by some hook or by crook. And my group ended up with, you know, the cheese and the tent, but no pegs. It was extraordinary. So, you know, I had four really angry young people who felt completely out of control because we probably all felt out of control um, and kicking backpacks down the mountain in the dark and, you know, swearing and going ballistic. And then, you know, sitting down with them and saying, guys, <laughs> we have no choice but to try and make the best of this. So let's see what we've got. Let's get a little brew on and see, okay, we've got a tea bag, but no milk, but we've got tea. And we've got this, but we haven't got that, but we can make it work. And we had probably had the most extraordinary conversation that night after everyone had eaten a cracker and a piece of cheese. And we'd found a little way to camp. Um, about what did it take, what they learnt about themselves. And I think it's that exploration of resilience and knowing that we've got things in ourselves that we can tap into and that you can't fight nature. That's the biggest thing. You can't fight storms and you can't fight the the sun setting and dark moving and, and you can't fight the wind and you can't fight the waves. You have to learn to work with it. And for me... That is the biggest power of wilderness in terms of mental health and resilience building. Is you learn what you can fight and not fight, and you learn to work with what you've got, and it's just fantastic. It's it's a kind of smallest beautiful philosophy in a different kind of way. Um, it's simple. It's very simple, but it's hugely powerful.
0: Obviously, the the setting in the wilderness have a huge part to play but that that sort of experience that conversation that you refer to is also reliant on your skills as as someone holding that space what what were some of the questions that you asked or if you don't remember specifically that that night what what might be some of the questions you would ask in that situation to prompt the kind of conversation that happened
1: well I I think one of the one of the tools I like to use is to think about. If I think back to when I was on the side of the mountain kicking my backpack down the mountain, and I think of myself now, you know, what did I do? What did you do to get yourself to where you are now? You know, how did you? What did you pull on in yourself? So, we have a lot of very deeply reflective questions uh, with our young people. Um, you know, really getting them to think and feel about what they have achieved, that's theirs, that's within their ownership, that they can use again. You know, I think one of my great tenets of work is is about, um, I was laughing with someone in the office the other day, one of our youngsters, it's about giving them the bicycle pump, that they've got a bicycle pump when they've left us and a bicycle pump of tools that they can pull through crises again because they found what strengths they had. And those strengths will never go away. They're always going to be theirs. So, and the reason I'm saying the bicycle pump, because this young lad has done brilliantly on our programs and then he dips into a big hole and then he's just been back with us this week on work experience. And within a day, he's beaming and smiling and chilled and everything's settling at home. And I said to him, you pump up here. You know, we seem to pump you up in some way by being here in the environment. I'm going to give you a bicycle pump when you leave because you've got to pump yourself up because we're not always going to be there. So it's on those trail journeys, the facilitation is very much geared towards enabling them to know what they are capable of and using those questions to dig that out because no one can ever take that away from them. It's always theirs and it's always theirs as a resource later. Um, So everything we do is around building up capacity for life basically and then nature just does it for us we don't often have to do a huge amount you just need a big storm or the tents to blow away Uh, you know so it's it's you know we work with what we've got and that's what I just love about my work is it's so excitingly flexible and fluid and you have to be so creative in the moment because nature is not that predictable at times Look at those poor boys in that cave. So, you know, and you've got to learn to work with it.
0: Yeah, as a <laughs> as a wildlife photographer and um, bird watcher, I can definitely empathise with nature not being predictable, and very often that's that's code for nature being frustrating or pushing up against what you what you want, and you have to modify your own your own aspirations or your own desires or wants. Um, and reevaluate those um against what's what's realistic or what yeah, what the natural world might allow um thinking thinking though um, about perhaps wildlife more specifically is there are there any moments that stand out um that have been more less the natural elements kind of making things tough for you and more a particular space or place or an encounter with wildlife being particularly memorable or meaningful to you or one of the people you were with and perhaps if that that's a really huge question in terms of searching searching through your memory banks perhaps something perhaps confine that to something that's happened recently
1: hmm Gosh, I've just, I've literally just come back from South Africa. Um, But I think I've got two, I've had some encounters with wildlife that have scared me witless. You know, we've been charged by a lion, I've been charged by an elephant. I don't want to go back through those experiences again, but they are deeply humbling. They're deeply humbling. Um, You, I think, I love wilderness and, the wild because it, it, it humbles us as humans I love mountains because they humble us as humans and I think it's good for us to be humble It's lovely to to realize you are you are at risk and you are this big great brain that's in our head is actually no defense against uh, a, an animal that's in a reactive mode because you've scared it or you've stumbled on it so you know you are pretty small fry which is very good but very scary. But then the moments of deep spiritual upliftment, there, there's one, one that really sticks with me, and you as a birder will really get it because I'm passionate about birds as well. And I was sitting on a cliff edge in a place called Chisarira, which is the most extraordinary gorge up on the Zambezi in, in, in um, Zimbabwe. We were, we were offered a lodge at the Wilderness Foundation to take it over, and I went time and time again to see how we could make it work in this extraordinary reserve. It's just too complicated. But we would go and sit and have a beer on the edge of Chisareera Gorge. And I was kind of everyone has been really noisy and I kind of moved along the cliff edge. And I mean this was a dramatic drop down and went and sat quietly on my own with my legs dangling over the edge. And I heard this sort of whooshing sound. And this black eagle rose up beneath me on a thermal mm. and Matt I would say it was probably six foot from me. And it just rose in this kind of very slow motion up on the thermal. And we just looked each other in the eye and it just kept rising and rising. And then it just flapped its wings and disappeared. But it was, I couldn't speak. I couldn't speak at all. I couldn't call anybody. I couldn't do anything. I was just completely mesmerized. And that for me, you know, the other wonderful, wonderful experiences, but that for me was, was quite phenomenal um, and something I will never forget. And one last little anecdote, which is very touching, going back to the beginning of our conversation about my father, was the month before he died, um, I went out to South Africa and the two of us went to the Pilonsburg Game Reserve together and had three days. And we were staying in a little chalet at one of the camps and we were just sitting outside in the dark under one of the big sort of acacia nilotica's, or one of them with wonderful seed pods. And just without any kind of warning, we were just surrounded by a herd of impala in the dark eating the seed pods. And they were so close to us that I could touch them with my hand. And the two of us just sat there in complete silence for about 45 minutes with these animals completely unaware or bothered by us but that communion with nature of that privilege of being around with these animals around us chomping and munching and was just magnificent so it was a wonderful memory of us being together at that sort of last part of his life it was beautiful
0: thank you for sharing those stories joe they were they were really they really hit the nail on the head i think um we've just got a few questions left i wanted to ask um You've already answered this in some ways, but through through the work that you've done, I suppose particularly thinking of the intergenerational element there is to the, to the uh, expeditions you do with the Wilderness Foundation, what have you learned about yourself from both the wilderness but also from the young people who you've worked with?
1: Um, I've learned that I can be very silly. Um, we laugh a lot. <laughs> um, I think I've learned that my child is definitely in wilderness. I, I I, immediately, as I get my pack on my back and I start walking, I, I've learned that that's my happy space. That's where I'm at my best. Um, I think that's where I feel most in touch with who I am. Uh, that deep connection just makes me come alive. Um, and I think that then is my, the nature is my bicycle pump because it pumps me up into a place where I'm able to to offer everything I have to the young people I'm with. So I find it's a very, um, I do, I, you know, I'm there for them and for the environment that we're in. So I'm deeply protective of the space that we camp in and you know, deeply passionate about Leave No Trace ethics, which hopefully I imbue in everybody. Um but I'm deeply passionate about offering them all that I've got, um, and it's up to them what they want to take. Um, but I've also learned that by role modelling, I can be a good role model, you know, because I'm really practical. You know, if something, if someone's tent pole breaks, I'm, you know, I'm always able to make somewhere fixing it or. You know, I've had to deal with girls having periods on mountains and nothing available, and having to make things out of socks and spagnum moss. And I mean, you know, I'm, I feel like Mrs. Kind of, let's we'll find a way. So I think I'm deeply optimistic. I hadn't realized how optimistic I am until I'd started doing this work, and how much I believe believe in in possibility, and that so much of our world is we close doors, and I've. Deeply learned to keep doors open because what might not work now might work then. And if you've closed the door, then you stop that that flow of energy and possibility. So, and I've learned that I, you know, I feel really loving towards everything. I feel very loving towards the young people, even sometimes when it's a nightmare. I feel really loving towards nature and incredibly grateful. I think I'm filled with gratitude um, a lot of the time. More when I'm in nature than sitting at my desk doing funding bids, but I'm very grateful when the funding bids work. But um, yeah, I think I've learned a lot about um, the fact that I think I'm incredibly strong when I need to be. I'm very resilient. I'm very able to. I'm very able to pick up um, a thread um, when things are not working. I'm very able to 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 keep going i'm i'm I'm, I'm, i'd like to think that i'm very strong and i can handle most things but i'm also very humble in the fact that i know i'm going to have my challenges over and over again um in time so i don't think i'm i've I've nailed it but i know that i can i can be very strong
0: thanks joe i think that might be a, a really nice note to to wrap up on as well but before doing that I just want to check if there's anything else you want to talk about or something you're expecting me to ask that I haven't asked about
1: oh I don't think so I mean thank you for giving me an opportunity to talk like that I don't do that very often so that was that was really thank you Matt that was very reflective for me actually that was very interesting so much of our lives are, are rushing around like lunatics and by having those kind of opportunities to think deeply is is very helpful. So I found that really. Thank you for that. Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think that um, you've covered just about everything that that I kind of expected you to cover. Um, but thank you. I love the I love the opportunity to think back about where we've been touched by wildlife. That was really emotional for me to go back to those moments. That was lovely. Thank mm. you.
0: You're welcome. No, thank you very much for. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast and that was a beautiful conversation um, and, yeah, I hope that people enjoy it. It was, um, it was everything that I'd hoped for and more from preparing for it. So thank you, Joe. Pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me. Great. Um,
0: great. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter, at Wild Voices Proj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much, and until next time.